And I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 this morning. Romans chapter 6. This is one of my favorite, probably my favorite chapter in Romans. So you can imagine how many sermons we're going to take to work through Romans chapter 6. It's been great to be in uh, the Lord's house with you, uh, studying Scripture, singing, praying, thinking about what God is doing in our lives. And uh, today my, my heart is, is really overwhelmed at the cost and the weight of hearing God's Word in Romans 6 opened up for us. So I would invite you with me to bow your head, close your eyes, and let me pray and ask God to use this chapter Lord, today we will consider a chapter that many of us have seen and read before. It conveys deep spiritual concepts about our relationship to sin. And yet, Lord, I I think it might be hard uh, for some of my brothers and sisters this morning to hear these verses, to hear this passage, to hear this sermon. It likely will be as hard for them as it was for me to think through what this actually means. Lord, give us strength through your Spirit. As we just sang, that your Spirit puts strength in every stride so that we might serve you. Lord, use Romans 6 to encourage my brothers and sisters today in their fight against sin Convict our hearts, but then fill us with bold courage to believe what Paul says. Lord, help me to communicate these things clearly. And I pray, Lord, uh, that we would trust you to work. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's good to be back in Romans. Good to be back with you. Uh, Last week, I was up in Pennsylvania on my way back here. And heard good things about your time in God's Word. Uh, But uh, just as a little form of review, uh, the last time we were in Romans, we took two sermons in Romans chapter 5 to describe a contrast between two men. Uh, The first man was the first man who ever lived in this world. The true historic Adam who walked in the Garden of Eden for a time with his wife Eve. And Paul contrasts Adam, the first man, with the greatest man, right? Who's the greatest man? Jesus. I'm going to ask you a few things today, so you can talk. Uh, Jesus. Jesus, the greatest man. The first man, Adam, enslaved us to sin. But the greatest man, Jesus, sets us free from sin's penalty, That's what Romans 5, 12 through 21 were about. He sets us free from the condemnation of the law. It was at the end of Romans chapter 5 that Paul declared that the grace of the gospel delivers us from the condemnation of two rulers. He personifies two kings. They are sin and death. Two sinister powers. Evil, wicked rulers who reigned and enslaved all humanity. 
But because of Jesus, where sin abounded, grace did what? Much more abound. Because of the greatest man, Jesus, we as believers are free from the reign and the rule of sin. As we move forward into Romans 6 and 7, Paul will answer three objections from opponents who might misuse or misunderstand what he said about grace abounding, where superabounding, where sin abounds. And I think you can see these pretty clearly in most versions of your Bible. So these three arguments all start with the same question. Okay, in my ESV Bible, it's what then? Or what shall we say then? Okay, so Romans 6 verse 1, what shall we say then? Romans 6 15, I don't know if you've seen these in your Bible. Romans 6 15, what then? And then we usually don't go beyond a chapter, but you know, we're looking at Romans 7 verse 7, what then shall we say? With these three markers, Paul, Paul identifies three arguments that opponents might make about his grace theology. Okay, and so uh, these opponents, uh, these uh, might object in ways like this. Well, Paul, doesn't that encourage sin then? I mean, if, if grace superabounds in the presence of sin, why not more sin? You want more grace. You like grace, right? You like grace? How do you get more of it? Well, I don't want to say that. Right? All right, that's Paul's opponent. That's what Romans 6, 1 through 14 are about. Doesn't that allow sin? Romans 6, 15 through 7, 2. And doesn't what you're saying, Paul, make the law itself sinful? Romans 7, 7 through 25. Now, answering these objections, I think, allow Paul uh, an opportunity to elaborate more fully on how the gospel delivers us, not only from the penalty of sin, but from its rule. That's key. Its rule or authority over us, over humanity. So, This morning, we're going to consider the first part of Romans 6, and it's going to be a lot about sin. This chapter is one of the most significant chapters on sin anywhere in the Bible. The word sin is found more in this chapter 17 times, according to my count this week. It's found more in this one chapter than in any other chapter of the Bible. No other chapter is even close. The closest to it is the next chapter. We're going to hear a lot about sin in Romans 6 and Romans 7. This is going to be about sin. And so we're going to take, mark my words here, three sermons to work through Romans 6 because of how very important this is for us. There are a lot of wrong ideas among Christians about what is our relationship to sin. And there are a lot of ideas that do not match this passage. I'm I'm sure some of us hold some of these ideas that are wrong. So we need to subject them to Romans 6 to learn more about that. 
And so we start in verses 1 through 11, where Paul lays out the way things really are. Paul will uncover here the facts of believers and sin, and he begins with an objection in verse 1. He raises an objection that some might raise. They, They might say, well, Paul, if it's all of grace, then we can live like godless people. Imagine a Jewish opponent saying this, one who loves the law of Moses. Well, if there's no law and it's all of grace, we can do whatever we want. We can live like the devil. That's what your gospel teaches, Paul, right? Well, no. It is not the more I sin, the the more grace is dispensed. Uh, It's not that grace so thoroughly deals with all my sins that I should not worry about future sinfulness. And so as we're looking at the outline here in your notes, if, if you've taking notes, uh, got a handout in the bulletin that could be helpful. The, the first point is the objection raised in verse 1. Let's see how Paul words it. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now that second question in verse 1 actually tells us what the issue at hand is what Paul is really concerned and what the objection that he's going after here. And so Paul raises his hard question and he's not afraid to raise these hard questions or answer them because what we're talking about here is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually like. So the question, are we to continue sinning or in sin that grace may abound? The answer is given in verse 2. So Man, we're already on the back of the handout. We're flying, right? So flip it to the back. Number two, answer given. That's the blank, given. Look at verse two. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul's succinct answer to his opponent is no way. Right? God forbid. I mean, this is the classic Romans way of saying what you are thinking is completely and utterly wrong about believers in sin and grace. That is, he states that the fundamental reality here that they need to consider is that uh, I think is found in the second part. Uh, how can we who died to sin still live in it? If you're saying no way, he answers it in the form of a question. He kind of punches back to his opponent. and He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That is, he states the fundamental reality that his opponents and everyone else, for that matter, must know about believers and sins. And it is this. If you get nothing else in this sermon, if I can't hold your attention for even five more seconds, get this. Believers are dead to sin. They are dead to sin. That's the most important point in this whole sermon. If you are a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, you are dead to sin. Got it? Okay, what are you? Dead to sin, you got it. Okay, now, please keep paying attention, hopefully. But what does that mean? Right, it's, it's one thing to get the point. It's another thing to know, you know, get the test question right. It's another thing, you know, what are we? Dead to sin. 
What does that mean? Uh, please describe in a paragraph what that means. Well, some people believe that this is something that believers must believe or appropriate, appropriate for themselves for it to be so. Okay, so there are a lot of commentaries and writers and Christians that you would interact with who would say this is potentially true for anyone who yields himself to these things. If you just believe it hard enough that you are dead to sin, then it becomes true for you. But that is not what this passage is saying. This is not something that we have to hope for or strive for or work for as believers. No, no, no. This is something that is true for all genuine believers. We are dead to sin. So don't let any expert tell you otherwise. Whether they're Keswick or Charismatic or Arminian or something else. Don't let any new book or old book tell you differently. Don't let any preacher, doesn't matter how cool he is, tell you that this passage teaches us that potentially this can be true for believers if we believe it hard enough or yield ourselves to it. No, the Bible says we are dead to sin. I think that many people say this is potentially true because they're dealing with something that's true for all of us, and that's the ongoing struggle that we have for sin. Right? We're supposed to be dead to sin, but it doesn't feel that way. Sometimes. You know, that been your experience this week? Have you felt no attraction, no pull to sin because you're dead to it? Does this passage mean that sin doesn't affect me? It doesn't stimulate me anymore? I'm like a dead man who can't respond? Well, the answer is that's not what this passage means. It doesn't mean that, or why would Paul have to say, do not let sin reign in your mortal... Why would he even have to say that? Like, if what he means is we're dead to sin and we can't respond to it in any way, why would he even have to say uh, things... Like, do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness. Instead, the context points us in a different direction. So what is dead to sin? What does that mean? Well, in Romans 5, the chapter before this, you remember Paul portrays sin as a ruler. And he explains that unbelievers in Adam live in the reign, the dominion, the authority of the tyrannical ruler, sin. So in this chapter, to be dead to sin means this. I think it means that we are dead to the realm or the rule of sin. Sin does not have authority over us. You see, all throughout Romans, Paul has been personifying sin. 
Sinclair Ferguson described it this way. He says, sin sin is like a king who reigns. It's like a general who employs our bodies as weapons. Sin is like an employer who pays wages and like a master who owns us. So I'm not the only one to say sin is personified by Paul. Sin is an evil, wicked king who not only rules and reigns and enslaves, sin kills. That's right. You want to be in this realm? King Sin uses his henchman death to eventually kill every person in his realm. You see, you are not out of his control until you die. So Paul says, if you are a believer, a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, sin is, sin is not your king anymore because you have experienced a death. I'm going to tell you more about that in the verses ahead. But Paul asks then here, how can we still live in it? Sin is not our king. We're not under his authority. How can we still live in it? That's his succinct answer. Before we move along, this reminds me of the story of Augustine. I don't know if you ever heard of Augustine's conversion. It's a pretty well-known story. Before his conversion, Augustine was a very immoral man, but one day God saved him. And he was forever different. Not that he would never sin, but he was different. Soon after his conversion, Augustine was walking down one of his normal routes when from above him uh, on a stoop... One of his former lovers, a well-known woman for her immorality, as he was passing by, called out to him. Augustine! Augustine! It is I! It is I! Then he replied, yes, yes, but it is not I. It's not I. Sin was no longer his ruler. That's Paul's answer here. Short answer. But then, in verses 3 through 11, he expounds on that. So the next point in your outline is answer expounded. Paul's short answer needs to be expounded. We are dead to sin, but what are the implications of that and how did that come to be? That's what verses 3 through 11 are about. I think that Paul expounds on this or elaborates on it in three ways. That's why I take verses 3 through 11. So the first one is verses 3 through 5, and the way he expounds on it is by answering the question, how are we dead to sin? should be a question that's already in your mind. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So Paul answers how we have died to sin. And his answer comes out of his theology of Christian Baptism. Baptism, of course, and we got to see this not too long ago, a few weeks ago. Baptism is a way for believers to identify themselves with Jesus Christ as their Lord. Baptism does not save us. 
right? You have to have faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, repent of your sin to be saved. But once saved, baptism is a special way, a special ordinance of the church whereby we declare externally to others around us, that's you, what God did in our heart and who we believe as our Lord. We believe in Jesus alone for our salvation and we want others to know that we identify Jesus as our Lord. That's a theology of baptism. But to go a little bit deeper than that, according to this passage, I think what Paul's saying is when we are baptized into Christ Jesus, we are baptized into his death. So that's strange. Where did you come up with that, Pastor Brent? That's what it says. When we're baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. That is, we identify with his death on the cross. You see, our baptism is symbolic of something. It is symbolic of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. There was an old commentator that someone directed me to this week. It's two authors, Sandley and Hedlum. And I don't normally read it, but someone said, you've got to read this passage and how they describe baptism. And I, I read it. I thought, man, it's just so good. They said it this way. They said, that plunge beneath the waters was like a death. You know what we're talking about? We're talking about baptism. That plunge beneath the waters was like a death. The moment's pause while the water swept on overhead was like a burial. The standing aright once more in air and sunlight was a species of the resurrection. I can't write like that. So how did we die to sin? We died in Jesus, our union with Christ Jesus, and our baptism pictures that. So if you're struggling with sin this week, like, you know, join the crowd, but if you're struggling with sin this week, what do I tell you to do? Remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. You told everyone there that you were dying with Jesus to walk in newness of life as well. Remember what you once were. Remember what God did in Jesus to change you. And if you're a believer here today in Jesus and you've never been baptized, what in the world are you waiting for? Like, why wouldn't you do that? We can get this thing filled up next week, right here. It'll be warm, too. Today we'll partake in communion that symbolically remembers the death of Jesus. But the other ordinance, baptism, pictures Jesus' death to sin and our similar death to sin. We died a death like he did when we entered into those waters and proclaimed to people what we believed about Jesus. That's how Paul could say we're dead to sin. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, us being in him, we're dead to sin. Why, uh, second elaboration is in verses 6 and 7. Why were we made dead to sin? So look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified in him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin... For the one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Uh, In these verses, Paul describes our death to sin in another way and answers specifically why God made us dead to sin. Dead to sin's rule and authority. Now, the most difficult parts of verses 6 and 7, where you're going to find a lot of difference of opinion, have to do with two descriptions here. The first one is our old self in the SV. It's usually translated our old man. And I actually like that a little bit better. It's a little bit more clear, I think, but it's, it's still difficult. Our old self. What is our old self? What is our old man that's being described here? Well, this is the man or the woman that we once were. The person we used to be in Adam. So we look around at unbelievers around us that they are in the old man. That's all they got. This is not, in this passage, a continuing part of us that joins with a new man. Now, there are other passages that talk about two natures. This, that's not what this is about. These are not two natures that we currently have. It's not he's saying you got an old nature within you and a new nature kind of duking it out. That might be true in other texts. But here, the old self refers to us entirely when we were in Adam. When we, uh, uh, what we were in Adam remains no more. It was metaphorically, as this passage says, crucified with Jesus. So when we identified with Jesus and were united to him, his death is our death to sin. So Paul says that our old man, our connection to the old humanity in Adam was crucified with Christ. And here's the first purpose. In order that our whole enslaved person might be put to death. And that brings us to the second difficult phrase, the body of sin. You see that in verses 6 and 7? What is the body of sin? Paul says that when this happened, when our old man was crucified with Christ, it happened in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Although the words body of sin are strange. I mean, I can't, you know, this week and weeks previous to this, just getting ready for this passage, like, Looking at these words, what is what is the body of sin? I mean, it's strange. I think it's fairly simple, though, the, the true meaning. It seems best to take this as our, the whole old person we used to be that was enslaved to sin. Later, and you can write down this reference, Romans 7, verse 24, Paul's description uh, there, uh, he describes the body of this death, and he uses like the same grammar, only he switches out sin and death. And there, I think to keep things consistent is Paul's description of the whole person we used to be being enslaved by death. So uh, in our passage, Paul says that our old man in Adam was crucified with Jesus so that our body, which was enslaved by sin, that it would be brought to nothing. That enslaved being is crucified and our former being enslaved by sin no longer exists. Now that leads to Paul's deeper answer for why we're dead to sin and it's found in verse 6. We were crucified with Jesus, it says, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
So why did God do this for us? Why did he make us dead to sins, reign and rule? Why did he crucify what we once were? He did all of this so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And verse 7 says it this way, that we'd be set free from sin. So simply stated, this is a whole reason or purpose that this is true for us, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin as our master. But there's one last elaboration, and that's verses 8 through 11. Can you hang with me for three more minutes? Say, I'm not hanging. Well, jump back on. Verses 8 through 11. He finally elaborates on what does death to sin also include. There's something else that's a true fundamental fact about who we are in Jesus that we all need to know. We all need to know we're dead to sin, but we also need to know we are alive to God. Okay, look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here in verses 8 through 11, Paul introduces something he's only hinted at before. We are, we are, uh, we not only were identified and united with Jesus' death in our baptism, we also were united with his life. So in verse 8, Paul says, we will also live with him. This might be a reference to deaths, uh, to, uh, our future resurrection life or the newness of life we have now. We will also live with him. Then in verses 9 and 10, he says that Jesus was temporarily subjected to death's rule. I mean, did you see that? Did that stick out to you as we were reading through that? Death would no longer have dominion over him. What does that mean? Well, there was a time when Jesus was subjected to the ruler death. And it dominated him. He died once for all, but then he arose. And now the text says he lives to God. You see that in the passage? He lives to God. What does that mean? Well, I don't think it means that there was a time where Jesus did not live for the glory of God. He always did. But I think Paul's making a point that he wants to drive home to us. After Jesus' resurrection, he lived to God. It means he lived for God or for God's glory. But the reason he's making that point is to tell us that's too how we must live now. Because if you get to verse 11, he gives his first imperative in the book of Romans. You must consider these things. You must count it up this way. You must figure these things to be true about you. Not only that you're dead to sin, but that you too are alive to God. Just as Jesus lives to God after his resurrection You are alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are dead to sin and alive for God. Men and women, boys and girls, if there aren't any left, 
in the room. That's the way things really are for believers. Those are the facts. The title of the sermon today is Just the Facts. You are dead to sin, which authority and rule over your life. You are alive for God if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. The reality is that if you are a believer in Jesus, you are an entirely new creature, creation. You need to renew your mind, and you need to consider these things to be true. If you are a Christian, your old man, what you once were in Adam, is crucified and dead. So you must, by faith, count or calculate that to be true for yourself. You shouldn't just pretend that it's true for you. You must bring your mind under control and tell yourself this truth of the gospel just about every day of your life. You have died with Jesus and now you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. I think one of the reasons So many Christians make so little progress in sanctification. It's because they don't think properly about themselves. And about sin. And I mean, I could go on and on for all the ways this text is misused. I could care less about that though. You're dead to sin's reign and rule. If sin comes calling this week, making demands... You don't have to obey. If you sin, it's not because you had to. It's because you wanted to. So in moments of application, I just say this, men, this week, if you feel like Augustine, you feel lust calling out to you this week and making demands on you, say this, say, I'm dead to you. Say it out loud. I don't care. You don't own me. I'm different now. I'm alive for God. Not for you, sin. When we feel sin crying out to any one of us this week, whether it's anger or lying crying out to us or drunkenness or slander crying out for us to do something. Know that that is not the way things are. Jesus has freed you from the authority of sin. And may God give you grace to see this properly this week and fight against sin's cries to bring you back. Let's pray together. Father, you have broken the power of canceled sin. You have set the prisoner free. Jesus, your blood has made the foulest clean. Your blood was availed for me. Lord, help us to believe this is true about ourselves. Some of my brothers and sisters are overwhelmed 
in the struggle with sin. They keep answering to sin's call. Give them strength to know in their mind first and foremost. This is not true of them. They don't have to surrender. They don't have to submit. And may you also strike within them this week the reminder that we're not just dead to sin's reign and rule, but we've been made alive to God. And Lord, although we won't get there in this passage this week, I pray that you would help us not to present our members, the members of our bodies as weapons for unrighteousness this week. But Lord, positively, help us this week. Instead, present our bodies, the members of our bodies, as weapons for righteousness. If my brother or sister is overwhelmed by their own sinfulness and fallenness this week, I pray that they'd be encouraged to go from here serving Jesus, not serving sin. Lord, help us. We are all fallen Left ourselves, we can't do it. Your spirit must put strength in every stride. Help my brothers and sisters who are struggling with sin today. To know these things, to think properly about them, to understand the facts, and to know that they relate to them. 